Thanks for tuning in to Redeeming Grace Bible Church. Here at Redeeming Grace Bible Church, it's our full conviction, as Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We pray as a result of this sermon, you come to see and know Christ more clearly, and if you do not yet know Christ, that you might also come to see him as Lord and Savior. Samuel 16, starting at verse 6. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. The Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. But the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. And Saul's servant said to him, Surely a distressing spirit from God is troubling you. Let our master now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful player on the harp, and it shall be that he will play it with his hand when the distressing spirit from God is upon you, and you shall be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. Then one of the servants answered and said, Look, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a mighty man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a handsome person, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent them by his son David to Saul. So David came to Saul and stood before him, and he loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. Then Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Please let David stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. And so it was, whenever the Spirit from God was upon Saul, that David would take a harp and play it with his hand. Then Saul would become refreshed and well, and the distressing spirit would depart from him. Thank you, George. You remember once again that though the grass withers and though the flower fades, that the word of our God remains forever. Just ask the Lord's help as we look at this passage together. Father, we come before you now and we just thank you for your word. Lord, this word that you have preserved for us through the ages and have given that we might also have the knowledge of the truth. Lord, that we may be brought near to Christ our Lord and As we consider these accounts in the Old Testament, Lord, so many years ago, we realize that you have put them into your scriptures for a reason, Lord, and it's not simply history, but it is, Lord, the um, instruction according to your spirit that is living and moving and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And we know that Christ testified that all scripture was written, Lord, to reveal him, to make him known. And so I pray as we consider even the life of of David and how you established his throne, Lord, that it would um, help us to better understand even the coming of Christ and his kingdom and reign 
And Lord, that uh, we may just worship you as a result and to, Lord, walk in the strength of your spirit, which we see active even from creation uh, throughout the Old Testament and to our our very own uh, time today. And so we give you thanks for the gift of your spirit and we pray that he illuminates our minds and hearts before your word. Together we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. The title this morning is uh, Troubled King and the Singing Shepherd. Again, a familiar passage in some ways, but I, I hope it's been helpful as we've looked at some of these stories that we may have heard bits and pieces of from even childhood, if you've grown up uh, around the Word of God. But to see them in the context of, of Samuel's narrative here as it unfolds, I think is, is so important and so helpful and even beyond uh, beyond Samuel, the context of the Bible, of the story that has been unfolding really from, from Genesis 1-1, and uh, how these things are all being shaped and molded by God in bringing us ultimately to Christ and understanding the nature of his kingdom, the nature of his rule and his reign. Now, I know it, it may be very uh, hard for us to imagine living in a a new country with an increasingly selfish ruler who is edging towards tyranny. Um, you know, certainly we'd never experience such things today, but uh, if you use your imagination, you could probably imagine being under such a ruler. And, and yet in the, the midst of, of that, God beginning to raise up a man after his own heart. And we would ask the question, how is the Lord going to bring this about? How is he going to establish this king that would really threaten the entire rule of the present leader? Um, we know as even today that um, when people get into positions of power and they begin to experience um, the, the ability to, to make decisions and, and move nations, that that becomes something they do not easily let go of. And... Last week, we saw how God revealed the choice of his anointed in David. We had the search for the true king of Israel, and we saw the clues that God had put forth through Samuel, that he would come of Jesse of Bethlehem, that he was revealed in in obscurity because of the threat against his life. And we also saw how the king was precious in, in God's sight, though rejected by men, overlooked by the, the eyes of man. And this king was also anointed by the Holy Spirit, not only with the horn of oil, but the Spirit of God rushed upon David, we found in verse 13, equipping him and enabling him to to walk in this new position the Lord has given him. And as it is in, uh, in Greek, I'm sure you've heard this as well, that in Greek, the word for spirit and for wind is the same, and it's similar in Hebrew. In fact, at Bible school, they had a building called the, the Ruark building, which comes from the Hebrew word, which means spirit, but also means wind. And we have this picture, this contrast here, where the spirit of God is rushing upon David. And we see this language a lot in the scriptures in connection to the spirit of God. The, the, the sound of, uh, even for the, the Hebrew reader, it would have 
almost sounded like the, the mighty rushing of the, the wind of God, the spirit of God. Now, we know, of course, the spirit of God is not an it. It is a he. It is a person, the third person of the Trinity, actively involved in the work of God. And we had the spirit then resting, uh, rushing upon David, abiding with David. And then in verse 14, we have the spirit lifting up from Saul and this stark contrast between these two rulers, Saul, the current king, David, the appointed prince. And so this morning we want to consider how God continues to establish the throne of David, how God brings him into the very courts of the king, unknown to Saul, God beginning to present this king, this prince, to the people of Israel and to affirm David to the people of Israel, even in the courts of the king. And so this morning, we're seeing how the sovereign God is orchestrating history in order to affirm and present his king and that we can therefore trust in God's ability to bring things according to his time and ways. And we can rest in the sovereign unfolding plan of God as we see it played out even here in affirming and presenting David as the future king, beginning to set this into motion. So how does God do this? How does he begin to establish David in the presence of the king? Well, first of all, we have God creating a crisis. So the first step that that God does in bringing David to present him and affirm him before Israel is he creates a crisis. And this section raises many questions for us because we, we find that as the Spirit of God rests upon David and, and is equipping him and enabling him and, and maturing him for this role of king, then we see Saul, not only the Spirit of God departing from Saul, but furthermore, a harmful spirit, we're told, or some translations will say an evil spirit, from the Lord, tormented Saul. And we have this moment of crisis in the life of Saul. And again, this just so sharply contrasts with David, the the man who is uh, abiding in the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, enjoying the presence of the Lord. We will see that continue uh, upon David's life. Saul now, the Lord having rejected Saul because Saul had rejected God through his disobedience. And now we're told this harmful spirit comes to Saul and torments him. And we're, we're, there's no question here that God is, is reigning over this entire situation. This isn't just, the, the, the language here is not just that God has, uh, you know, like a lot of people say, well, God had no design in that, no purpose in that. That's just the devil's work and God is, has nothing to do with it. Uh, we, we really can't get away with that sort of language here. Clearly the Lord is creating this crisis in the life of Saul And it comes as a consequence, no doubt, of his own rebellion. Now, we may ask questions. We may wonder, well, how does a good and holy God send an evil spirit to torment Saul? Are we talking about a fallen angel? Is this a demon? Um, Is Saul possessed by a demon here? Uh, Or is this possibly a, a righteous angel, at times even righteous angels, are, are given the uh, various instructions of the Lord. For example, we know the Lord sent 
the, the death angel upon Egypt to punish and kill the firstborn. We're not really told that that was a, a demonic spirit, a fallen angel. The, the, the angels of God are certainly able to execute justice and to carry out the Lord's commands. But obviously it does raise some questions in our mind. If God does not tempt to evil, if God is not the author of evil, then how, do we, how are we to understand him creating this crisis by sending this spirit to torment Saul? And uh, a principle that we have to keep reminding ourselves when we come to these sort of questions in the Bible is that we look for the clear portions of Scripture to help us understand and interpret what is unclear. And we, we want to be careful to, to draw up an entire you know, theology of, of demons and angels based upon a narrative like this. We want to look to the other parts of God's Word and see how it may help us understand what is going on here um, and, and first of all, we just need to affirm the, the, the person of God, the character of God. As James 1 verse 13 tells us, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it has conceived, James says, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. This is this is an important truth that we have to remind ourselves. God is not a tempter. We are, we are drawn and enticed by our own desire. And when that conceives and gives birth, it brings forth death. But at the same time, we see God is sovereign over all authorities and all principalities. And there's a sense in which God will attribute to himself even calamity and, and even this spirit that has come now to torment Saul, Isaiah 45, 6, I am the Lord, there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does these things. And, and so we, we have to hold these truths in tension. Um, God, we're also told in 1 Timothy 6, 5, he dwells in unapproachable light. John tells us there's no darkness in God, 1 John 1, 5, that uh, there is no darkness in him, though he is sovereign over all things and is using all things for his own purpose and glory. And there are some other helpful examples, I think, that really do shed some light on this, this crisis moment uh, for Saul and how God is using it for the, the furtherance of his own plan and the establishing of the king. Um, of course, we have to think of Job uh, in, in light of such a, uh, a dilemma in our minds. In Job 1, verse 6, we have this incredible scene where we get to go, as it were, into the very courts of heaven, and we have the, the devil, uh, and this is all very mysterious to us, but he is able still to, to communicate with the Lord, and, and uh, he mentions that he's been going to and fro throughout the earth, and, and that it's the Lord who doesn't command Satan to go and afflict Job, but certainly the Lord directs his attention to Job and says, have you considered my servant Job? And of course, this begins this story where the devil accuses uh, God of having protected Job and put this, this uh, hedge of protection around him. And that's why he's faithful to God. And so God grants the devil the ability to, to torment him, to, to kill his children, to destroy his property and to, to afflict his body with disease. So on the one hand, we could say the Lord has done this to Job, and Job even attributes this to God at various times. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away, Job says. 
But behind the scenes, we realize that the way in which this has happened is the devil was, was active and involved according to his own malicious will. But through that, God also had a plan, a design, uh, a purpose in this for Job. And the devil was nothing more than an instrument used for the greater ends which God had desired. And again, we, we want to maybe question that, but I think if we were to talk to Job today and ask him if he resents what had happened to him, if he resents the Lord, I think Job would, would answer us and say, no, that this has translated for my glory and for my joy, that the sufferings of this life, as I was sanctified and drawn closer to God than I could have ever been otherwise, that that has now produced a weight of glory, as Paul said. And this is where we must keep in mind that God sees the whole picture. He sees the beginning from the end. He sees not only the struggle and the crisis and heartache, but he sees the result and the unfolding of his own plan. We could think also of Joseph, who tells his brothers that you meant this for evil, this wicked uh, deceitful selling me into slavery, lying to our father that I had been killed by an animal. They meant that for evil, but he tells his brothers, God meant this for good. And again, we see how God is able to use even the evil inclinations of man and of demons for his own good. And uh, of course, this is most clearly seen in the example of, of Christ our Lord and uh, a passage we reference. Uh, fairly often, but it's really a, a great one to just get into your mind as Peter preached at Pentecost. We see this reality come together most clearly in the, the, uh, the death and resurrection of Christ. Was it at the hand of, of demons and sinful men that Christ was crucified? Yes. Was it according to the eternal plan and purposes of God so that we might say in one sense, God the Father desired and, 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 and designed that Christ would go to the cross? Yes, we can say both of those things. And that's exactly how Peter puts it in Acts 2.23. He says, um, no, 2.22, Acts 2.22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And so Peter is saying, on the one hand, this all happened according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, that Christ be crucified, a lamb slain for sinners, raised on the third day. And yet Peter also says, this happened at the hands of lawless men that crucified him unjustly. And, and these two realities that live together in the scriptures. And, and so we have to be careful that we don't uh, toss out the, the truth of God's sovereign reign over all things in a desire to, to um, keep this sort of language uh, from being used that the Bible uses. God sent the spirit. We, we don't have the backstory here exactly how that all played out. But we can affirm the goodness and the, the, the holiness of God, while we can also see God is able to even use evil and fallen uh, angels for his own purposes and his own designs. 
So Saul willingly rejected God's word. And yet even his rejection of God's word does not foil God's plan, but actually works to advance it. It's through this crisis and now this distancing from God and even now the, 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 uh, the coming of, of evil spirits upon Saul to torment him. All of this is still going to work for the establishment of the king. And I think for us as well, we need to remind ourselves of this truth. We live in a world today with so much uncertainty. We may look around and feel that things are out of control, that certainly no good can ever come from the chaos. Maybe it's of the, the, the various crises in our own lives, the struggles that we personally deal with. The, 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 maybe it's physical or emotional, the, the questions and things we wrestle with that can burden us down. We may be tempted to conclude there's, there's no way that God is presiding over this in any way. There's no way that, that good can continue to come from this situation. But as we see, God time and time again uses these moments to sanctify his people, to advance his kingdom, to expose the, the unrighteous. And so we have to remind ourselves of that. And so the first way that God is going to establish and reveal his, uh, rather uh, affirm his king is through this crisis in Saul's life. And secondly, he then presents the prince of his choosing to the courts of the king. And it's so fascinating how God does this. And uh, Alistair Begg made the comment that if one was just to look at the various times that a servant was used to communicate the truth of God or direct people according to God's plan, uh, that would be a very fascinating study. But here we find, again, it's this nameless servant and servants of Saul that first of all diagnose what's happening, which is very interesting. It's not Saul who discerns that the Spirit of God has departed from him, much like Samson who didn't even realize that his strength had left him, the Spirit of God had departed. Saul is told by his servants that now a harmful spirit of, from God is tormenting you. And the servants put forward the recommendation for what would help. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. And so they put forward this solution. And even before they have time to put together the search committee and begin sending out uh, inquiries or, or holding some sort of audition, uh, as to how they would find someone that was skillful to play the harp. Well, another servant, we're, we're told, in verse 17, presents this future prince of Israel. So Saul said to his servants, um, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. He, he agrees to their plan. And then one of the young men answered, behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence. And the Lord is with him. So we have this incredible presentation of the prince to the people. Saul has no idea that the man who is being presented him is the man that Samuel has just previously anointed with oil, whom God has set his mercy upon to be the future king of Israel. And now he's presented to Saul and to his court as a solution for Saul's crisis, this tormenting and harmful spirit. And it is quite the resume that we have of David. Um, 
very even, and, and I guess, more developed than the previous picture of David. All we were told previously in his anointing was that he was a shepherd. He cared for the sheep of Jesse, and he seemed to be quite insignificant among Jesse's sons. And we had a picture of his appearance. He had this reddish appearance, probably from being out in the sun. And uh, he had beautiful eyes. He was handsome and a good presence, sort of a radiance about him. But, but now we're given this additional picture of, of David as not only skillful in playing this liar, but a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, of good presence. And really the key to this presentation of David is the end of verse 18. And the Lord is with him. This is central to understanding the person of David and to the king of God's choosing. It is the presence of God that really marks him apart. And and I think all the other characteristics that come are, are byproducts of this fact that God's presence is with him. And I couldn't help but think of, uh, once again, even Psalm 23, where we have David himself describing this presence of God in which he lived. And uh, I know it's familiar to us, but just to, to just think now of this young man who is being presented before Saul, this is how he himself describes the presence of God in his life. Saying in Psalm 23, 1, the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And this is David's own testimony of of how the, the Spirit of God day by day sustained him and directed him and nourished him. And, and he uses this wonderful imagery of the, the shepherd who is tenderly caring for his sheep. And David said, this has been my experience of God's presence with me. It's a wonderful picture of what it means to abide in Christ, to abide in the Lord. And as we do so, his spirit continually changes and sanctifies and matures us into his likeness. And of course, David himself being a picture of the true king, Christ himself, who perfectly dwelt in the presence of God, in the power of the spirit, never once grieving the spirit, Christ, who is um, the, 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 the final um, king and, and ruler of Israel, the one with whom God is very pleased and so we have this picture of David that really is meant to also point us forward and into the, the person of Christ himself, God's anointed prince. Now, just for a moment to consider the story of David in the, um, the large picture of, of redemption. In many ways, this picture has been seen before in the Bible. The land uh, is, is, is made by God. There is a, a dwelling place. There is um, the provision of God. And, and yet the land is corrupted and broken due to sin. And this is in many ways the, the garden. The garden is 
meant to be something of a, a temple. You have the, the, the rivers coming out. You have the, the trees at the center, almost the, the, the symbols of, of God's um, kindness and provision for Adam. And Adam given a rule and reign over this garden. He's to, to care for it, to tend it. He's to fill it with other image bearers with the help of his wife Eve. And, and this picture is, is carried out throughout the Bible as man falls into sin and we have God calling Abraham. What we have is God reestablishing upon the earth a people for his own namesake. And it is all about God's presence once again dwelling with the people. And so through Abraham, we see that God has established a line uh, a people who will be God's people. They will reflect his glory. They will, they will rule and reign uh, on God's behalf. And so David comes as really the culmination of these Old Testament promises. He is put forward as, in many ways, a new Adam, as, as the, the better man than, than Saul, as one who is to re-establish the rule and reign of God upon the earth, to re-establish the presence of God upon the earth through the temple. And, and so this comes in, in light of this history, and yet we know that it's also pointing us forward. This presentation of David is fascinating in light of the, the desperate need of humanity up to this point. Humanity has needed a king. Why? Well, it's the same question that Doug uh, Glenn asked the children earlier, uh, why do we need Christ as king? And the answer was, who can help me out? Why do we need Christ as king? Because we are weak and helpless. And that's the picture. The people, weak and helpless, with no king, doing what's right in their own eyes. God presents this man after his own heart with this character. We could summarize David's life um, as, as a life of godliness, a life of, of holiness, of uh, integrity and strength and courage. God raising him up, presenting him as the king. And even as we come into the New Testament, we have a similar sort of presenting of Christ, not only by the means of John the Baptist, but in, in Luke 2.51, we find that Christ grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. And, and it's again this picture of the the king being prepared being presented to the people of Israel and so even for us we see here a a picture of God's presence and the sort of life that results in that presence which points us to Christ but also reminds us that as we are indwelt by the Spirit of God as we are brought into the kingdom of God, that the sort of, there is a sort of life that should begin to flow out of this calling of God, a sort of godliness, a sort of sanctification. David had this, rep- this reputation, uh, even among the, the men of Saul's courts, of being someone who the Lord was with. And we have to ask ourselves, what is it that even the watching world says of us? Now, it's not the main thing that we have to ask ourselves, but it certainly is of some value. Even Paul, when giving instructions for appointing elders in 1 Timothy 3.7, he said that they should be well thought of by outsiders. You see, our reputation in the world, uh, the, the way that, that we 
behave, the way that we speak, the way that we um, live out our lives is meant to be a testimony of God's goodness and presence with us. And, and we need to ask ourselves, is my life reflecting that, that the God of heaven and earth is, is with me, is, is in me? Am I quick to confess sin or to acknowledge um, guilt? Am I responsible? Am I seeking to, to, to honor the Lord with my, with my mouth and with my time and with my thoughts? And am I, am I displaying the, the grace and kindness of God that he has poured out upon me? As Christians, we are ambassadors and we are in many ways to be like the this, this servant as well who presents the prince to the people through our lives and through our words, we are to be, in a sense, presenting Christ to a watching world and to one another. And, and so we are to be growing in godliness, abiding in the strength of his spirit. We're to be living lives of integrity and, 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 and courage and walking in the truth and, and, and laying down our lives for our, our family and, and one another. And as we do that, we become something like the servants even who would proclaim the excellencies of the prince. And in many ways, we ought to be content to be the nameless servant who would present the king to the people. It's not about promoting our own names. It's about promoting Christ. And if we are recorded in the records of history as being the nameless servant who, who lives their life and speaks in such a, such a way to make this king known, then... Praise be to God. So God presents the prince in the court of the king. And lastly, he proves the prince before the people. So we all know that there's a difference between being presented with something and then actually testing it and proving its effectiveness. Whether that is a a new power tool, for example. So maybe you, you know, sometimes at uh, hardware stores or... Home Depot, they'll have the tool set up and, and you get to take the drill and put the screw into the couple two by fours, whatever it is. And they're trying to, to not only show you and, and present this tool to you, but they're trying to also show you what this tool will do. And, and in that sense, it's proven. Or maybe I know some of you uh, with uh, agriculture, you, they do dem- demos where they're going to show the new auger. They're going to show the, the combine or they're going to show the swather and you maybe get to sit in it and, and try the controls or they'll, they'll do a little bit of uh, grain handling to show you how this will work. And in a sense, proving it. Maybe it's a, a teaching tool with your children and you've heard of a, a, a resource that's supposed to be effective and helpful and, and is presented to you, but then it comes time to, to also prove that. Is this actually effective? Well, in a sense, God is not only presenting David as the, the future prince, but he's also proving David. And we will see this time and time again here. He's really proven in the courts of the king And in the following chapters, we see David also proven on the battlefield as the the true king. And it's fascinating how God brings this all about. And again, we don't have time to to get into maybe some of the the questions that would come up here. But as we see David come, um, Jesse is contacted. And I don't know that he really had too much of an option but to send David at this point. The king asks for someone. You you send them. And uh, Jesse sends something of a... uh, gift to Saul with the, the sheep, um, or sorry, the, the goat and the skin of wine. 
So David comes, and we're told as David comes into the court of the king, immediately Saul sees the, 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 the goodness and, and the, the, the beauty of this young man. We're told that Saul loved him greatly. Almost this picture of his, like one of his own sons, Saul is drawn to this young man. He sees him as a young man of integrity, of, of skillful, and he uh, is, is prudent with his words. He shows discretion. And not only that, we're told that uh, Saul appointed David as one of his armor bearers. So someone who would, would follow Saul into battle. And in many ways, Saul's life would be dependent upon the armor bearer to, to bring the protection and the equipment that he needs into battle. But we also see that uh, Saul points him into his service. But then when the harmful spirit from God comes upon Saul, David takes the harp or the lyre and plays it with his hand and Saul is refreshed and well and the harmful spirit departs. And in these ways, I think God is really proving his prince in the very courts of the king. And of course, the irony here is that Saul does not realize what's happening. He doesn't realize that this young man is the one who will replace him as king. And though Saul for now um, seems to love David and, and, and trust his very life to David, we know that soon his jealousy will um, replace that and uh, he will turn on David as a threat. And now, you could see how, especially uh, in some you know, charismatic church they would love to uh, take a passage like this and conclude that the best way to drive out demons is through music in fact i i uh, didn't get around to it but i was going to look and see if i could find any kind of uh, so-called ministry where they drive out evil spirits with instruments because you could see how we might conclude that well the point here is that we should use music um, in 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 doing uh, spiritual warfare and of course, that's a principle that is, is picked up in the New Testament in some sense. Um, Paul would say that we are to be filled by the Spirit. We are to, to sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs. And in this way, we are sanctified and we are encouraged as the truth of God is used through the, the gift of music. But the main point here isn't so much giving us a, a lesson on how to drive out demons. But again, it's showing that God is affirming and establishing David as the man of his choosing, as the one whom God is with. It wasn't so much that he had a magical harp that drove the demons out, but that the presence of God was with this young man, and God was establishing and affirming him before the courts of the king. And I would definitely like to think, we don't know for sure, but uh, David, as the sweet psalmist of Israel, I would think he probably was also singing maybe some of the very psalms that he had written. Probably not just a matter of playing the instrument, but also proclaiming the, the truth of God, the word of God to Saul. And, and so there's a wonderful picture there as well that God has given us the gift of music, which helps us to communicate and even remember at times the truth of God's word. And certainly that has a refreshing and uh, a, a, a edifying effect upon the soul and upon the body of Christ. But we want to be slow to develop too much of a, um, you know, a formula here, how to battle depression or how to do these various things. This is a very unique situation in the life of Saul and God 
I think, most basically establishing David as the coming king. And through these means that God has uh, set up, he is doing that. Of course, I can't help but mention as well to see how David, uh, using the various skills and gifts that the Lord has given him, no doubt he he cultivated these things as, as well in his life. And these became the means of encouragement and ministry to others. I know some of you young folks are taking piano lessons or uh, learning an instrument, and and that is a wonderful uh, opportunity that you have. I encourage you to to press on in that, to to be diligent in that as a means to encourage and build up. And the Lord certainly has used that mightily throughout the ages. But most basically, God is affirming his prince to the courts of the king. And this is something God will do time and time again, not only in the life of David, but we can think of, again, Christ, who was affirmed before the people of Israel through the various signs and and things that he did. His very life became an affirmation of God's presence with him. Even Even the critics of Jesus could not help but notice the signs that he did. And, uh, for example, in John 9, 16, the Pharisees, some of them said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? Jesus was also put forward before the people of Israel, presented to them, even through the witness of John the Baptist. But then God affirms him as his Messiah, as his king, through his life, through his words, through the actions and the miracles that he did. In fact, John, in his gospel, never uses the word miracle. It's always a sign. It's a sign to indicate the hand of God upon this man, God affirming him to the people of God. And we see the same thing with the apostles. Um, Paul would reference the signs of the apostles in 2 Corinthians 2.12. These were unique gifts, unique signs given to the apostles of Christ to affirm them to the church and to the people of God. And, and so these things in that sense cease because when the office of apostle comes to an end, those affirming signs cease with them because there are, there are no longer uh, apostles uh, in that same way. And so God uses these affirmations upon his servants to affirm them to his people. And while we don't expect necessarily these same things to be repeated in our lives, as we are born of the Spirit and brought into newness of life in Christ, there is also this work of the Spirit in us as we are sanctified and changed and we begin to repent of sin. There is this affirming effect as well, not only to our own souls, but also to a watching world. They begin to sense the aroma of Christ through us. They begin to to hear the change of language. They begin to see the shift in priorities. They begin to, to see compassion or mercy flowing out from the people of God and affirming even to a watching world, though they shun the light, they they can't help but note the Lord is with them. And so our calling is to, first and foremost, to see Christ, whom all this is pointing to, seeing the perfection of his life, the sufficiency of his death, the victory of his resurrection, the power of his ascension where he ascends and is is ruling and reigning and, and his kingdom 
flowing out now from before the throne by the Spirit through the church as the gospel goes forth, we are brought into this reality and we are called to abide in him and to present him to a watching world and through our lives affirming the truthfulness of the true king. And so I pray that you are looking to Christ and that you are not growing discouraged at maybe what seems to be a crisis in our own day, wondering what God is going to do with this. He has always been and will always be leveraging all things for the putting forth of his king, the affirming of his king, for the good of his people. And as we humble ourselves, we turn from our sin, we join in the chorus of the saints and we sing, even as the, uh, the hymn writers sing, that we are children of dust and feeble and frail. And in you do we trust, for you never fail. Your mercies, how tender, how firm to the end. Our maker, defender, redeemer, and friend. O measureless might, unchangeable love, whom angels delight to worship above. You ransomed crea- your ransomed creation with glory ablaze, in true adoration, shall sing to your praise. And we'll close there this morning, and we will have a song together. So let's bow and pray together, please. Gracious God, we thank you for, Lord, the, the time in which we live. Lord, for we have the advantage of, of looking back over thousands of years of history and seeing your plan unfolding generation after generation. Lord, bringing all of history to its climax and the coming of of Christ and the establishment of his throne, Lord, the the passing away of the old covenant, the establishing of the new, all of these promises and blessings that we are given in Christ. We realize you have prepared the way for them, even through David, Lord, the, the king of Israel, who delighted to acknowledge you as the true king, Lord, the one who was his shepherd, And, Lord, we rejoice that you are also our shepherd by faith in Christ. And so help us to be steadfast. Help us not to grow weary. Lord, to be about the advancing of your kingdom as we live our lives day by day, as we interact in our homes, and as we go about our jobs, as we, Lord, live out this life before a watching world. May they see that you, the the God of heaven, are with us and that our lives affirm your power and your mercy and grace. Um, Lord, to your glory and to your praise. And we ask this all now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this sermon preached at Redeeming Grace Bible Church. If you'd like to find out more about Redeeming Grace Bible Church or find other sermons and resources, please visit us online at www.redeeminggracechurch.ca. We pray the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. That the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.